As we start this morning, I want to ask you two questions. The first is this, are you ready to die? Well, that's not a fun question to think about. Last week, I spent the whole week, uh, the sermon last week, talking about suffering and being in the wilderness. And this week, I ask you, are you ready to die? And you say, well, that escalated quickly. Glad we get a little bit more joyful and hopeful topic this morning. There was an there a, a English Puritan by the name of Richard Baxter, and he was known, uh, there was this statement that he said that he preached as a dying man to dying men. It's, it's a good statement for thinking about what we do as we gather this morning. And I don't mean to be morbid, but it's true in the sense that all of us one day will face the judgment. All of us will one day come to the end of our lives. So I do stand here as a dying man. I just don't know when. And I'm preaching to those of you who will one day die. We just don't know when. And so I ask you, are you ready for that? Are you ready for Judgment Day? Are you ready to face a righteous and holy God on the Day of Judgment? In the book of Romans, chapter 3, I've got this scripture for you, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Scripture makes it clear that all of us are sinners, and because of that, Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. So do we as sinners, as sinful people, as unrighteous people, are we ready to face a righteous and a holy God? And I don't want you to treat that question lightly, thinking that just because you go to church or just because you know things about God, I'm, it does not necessarily mean that Judgment Day will go well for you. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is speaking to a group of people, and, and, and these are a group of people who thought they were very close to God. And he's explaining to all of his followers, trying to help them understand what it truly means to follow God. And, and Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, Not every one of you who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And Jesus sets up this picture helping people to understand that when it comes to Judgment Day, there will be a lot of people there who think, I'm okay, I'm good enough, I, I know the right things, I did the right things, I know enough things about God, but I'm not asking this morning if you go to church or if you love God or I'm not asking what your thoughts are of God. I'm asking, does God know you? I'm asking, are you ready to face that God? Are you ready for Judgment Day? Are you ready to face the righteous and holy God? And beyond that, what kind of a God do you think you will face? What kind of a God do you think you will face there on Judgment Day? Are you banking on the fact that this is a God of love, a God of overwhelming mercy and grace who's overwilling, who is willing to overlook so much that are you banking on the fact that God will let you into heaven in that sense. Also, do you see any difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? For those of you that have been around church long enough to hear some of the things that are said about who God is, do you believe that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament? What I mean by that, when people use that phrase and statement, we have many, many accounts in scriptures in the Old Testament where God seems to act with a quick and swift vengeance. You just heard one of those stories read for you. And, and yet we also have the New Testament where you see Jesus come with 
uh, his, his gracious, loving, merciful person representing God's love to a people, and we know that God is love. So do you see any difference between the two gods? And what kind of a God do you think that you will face um, when it comes to Judgment Day? So the first question, are you ready to die? The second question is this. I know that I'm speaking this morning to those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. I'm speaking to Christians this morning, but I'm also speaking to some of you who haven't yet made a decision to place your faith and trust in Christ. And so I want you to think about these questions. And to believers, I would ask this question this morning. Are you ready to live? Have you found the joy-filled life? Have you found what it means to follow Christ in such a way that your life is one filled with joy, that your life is one filled in the worship and pursuit of a righteous and holy God? Jesus said this in John chapter 10 as he was explaining that he was the good shepherd. He was the one who came to bring life. In contrast to those who sought to destroy life, those who were the thieves of joy and the thieves of life. And Jesus said this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and that they have it abundantly. So if in the first question you had a confidence that yes, I'm prepared to die, I'm prepared to face that righteous judge, here's my question for you. Have you found life? A joy-filled life, the abundant life that Jesus talks about. I want us to think about those two questions as we try to walk through our scripture text this morning because I think that it will this, this passage of Scripture, as we begin to walk through it, will help give us some of those answers, will help unlock some of those questions so that we can have confidence that, yes, we are prepared to die, but then also so that we would understand what it means to live in the worship of who God is. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, let's begin to walk through the passage and figure out what is going on, what is taking place in the life of David as we walk through this together. 2 Samuel chapter 6, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio, Ohio went before the ark. Let me catch you up in the story. What's taking place? What is this ark? Why is it being moved? Where is David? As we walk through the life of David as a church together this summer, the last time we were with David, we saw that he was in the wilderness. He was in his period of testing and suffering. He was on the run. He was living as a fugitive. Saul was the current king of the land, and Saul was hunting for David's life. David wouldn't take shortcuts, refused to circumvent, God's plan and, and that story continued where we left off in chapter 24 it continues for several more chapters there's more attempts made on David's life there's more back and forth between Saul and David eventually there's more battles with the Philistines as a nation Israel's enemy and eventually Saul himself dies and at the beginning of 2nd Samuel remember in the original 1st and 2nd Samuel were together as one book the only reason they're divided for us is because of the lengths of the scrolls 
but it's just one continuous story as God's working out his plans and purposes with these first kings of the nation of Israel. And so Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel. And at the beginning of 2 Samuel, David then becomes king. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2. David is uh, initially made the king of Judah, the southern tribes, when he was 30 years old. And seven years later then, he was made the king of Israel, the northern tribes. So initially, for the first seven years, there's still a divided kingdom, or there's two different kings represented. The second king was a descendant of Saul. And eventually, after he's murdered, so there's still more stories of back and forth, still more murders, still all kinds of crazy things taking place in the kingdom. And just the chapter before, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the nation then is unified. David is made king over all the tribes of Israel, and David then decides that there's something important that needs to happen. At this point, as a king, one of the first moves that he wants to make uh, is, is now that the nation has been centralized, he wants to help them restore their worship. And he wants to go get the ark, which has been in Abinadab's house, and he wants to bring it to Jerusalem where he's going to reign. He realizes that this is significant and important for the people of Israel. Now, what is the ark? What did it represent? I'm going to take some time to explain more of this later on. So if you're still left with a few questions, hang on to those and we'll try to get to them. But for now, suffice it to say that the ark was, uh, it, it was a wooden box, almost four feet long by just over two feet high and two feet deep. So you've got this long cube that if you remember some of the stories of uh, as God gave instructions of this is how the temple, the tabernacle was supposed to be laid out the tabernacle when the people were a mobile people when they were moving from place to place there was a tent that could be tore down a tent that could be set up and instruments pieces of furniture for lack of a better term uh, of some of these altars of worship some of these pieces that were very symbolic and significant for the life of the people and the ark was the centerpiece of all of that it sat in the holy of holies it was the one piece that most closely signified the Lord's presence as it sat in the Holy of Holies and the high priest could only enter once a year. Well, it was such a significant piece as the central piece of Israelite worship that decades earlier, the Philistines in 1 Samuel, this is about chapters 4 through 7, they captured the ark. They realized how important this was to Israel. And as Israel and the Philistines went back and forth in their battles, they captured the ark and they took it into their temple. Well, only bad things happened when they took the ark into their temple and they couldn't get rid of it fast enough. So they put it on an ark, on a, on a on an ox cart and they sent it back to the Israelites and it ended up in the house of Abinadab or it ended up in a private household and there it stayed for decades. Somewhere between three and five, uh, one person even said seven decades, but it stayed there for a very, very long time. All throughout the reign of Saul, the ark was never central to the people's worship. And so here's David on the scene and of course, as them and the Philistines continue, as Israel and the Philistines continue in their back and forth war and battle, perhaps David is again concerned that they might try again to steal the ark, especially now that the kingdom is unified, especially now that he's going to bring the central 
point of his kingdom to Jerusalem. And, and, and so perhaps he wants to bring the ark there for safekeeping, but also I think he wants to return the people to the worship of God. And, and he realizes how important this is, and so he sends 30,000 people to go get this ark and to bring it back. Now, Uzzah and Ahio were, were Levite priests. They were the sons of Abinadab. Abinadab would have been a priest keeping care. He was charged with keeping care of the ark in his private household. He wasn't following the instructions of how the ark was supposed to be stored. But for better or worse, for, for somewhere between 30 and 50 years, he had been the caretaker of the ark. And now his two sons put the ark on a cart and they're going to bring it to Jerusalem. And everybody is rejoicing and excited when you look at verse 5. To this point in the story, there's significant details I've left out, and we'll pick those up, but if all you had was what I just said, uh, there's great reason for rejoicing. You would think things are looking up. You would think they're about Israel is about to get back on track because something that they had been ignoring for three to five decades is about to be restored to its rightful place of prominence. Look at verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals, so both stringed instruments and percussion instruments and there is just a big worship party going on as this ark as this processional makes its way to Jerusalem and you would think everything is great but look at verse 6 and when they come to the threshing floor of Nacon Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled the language there is difficult to translate. Some of your translations will say something different. Why the oxen stumbled, if they tripped, if they were prodded. There was some reason that the ark lurched and Uzzah puts his hand out to stabilize the ark. And then look at verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. This is one of those stories that you look at and you say, what? Really? That seems harsh. Is that, is that actually uh, what, what would have happened? I mean, why did something this serious happen? He, he, he was trying to protect the ark, right? I mean, wouldn't you kind of think, like, didn't you see how pure his motives were? That the, the ark, the most privileged central piece in the worship for the nation, it was about to fall and hit the ground. There was about to be mud on the ark. Uzzah uh, was trying to do this good thing to protect the ark and he puts his hand on it and he keeps it from falling and as, as one author said just at the moment when you think God would bring down a voice from heaven and say thank you Uzzah instead God decides to take his life really? why? that seems harsh is the God who would do that in the Old Testament the same God that you and I will face on judgment day is, is the God who would judge that way the same God who will judge you and I when we stand before God on the final day and face our judgment? Well, to understand the answers to these questions, we need to understand a little bit more about the ark, and we need to understand a little bit more about sin. So let's explore these areas so that we can understand why would God respond the way he did. 
in such a, a what we would look at and say, wow, that's, that's harsh, that's strict. Let's look at this and understand. What, well, what did the ark signify? I've explained a little bit about it, but remember this. Let's go back a little bit further and think about the ark. Not just the ark, but also the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was this tent that as the people were a nomad people wandering through, they, they needed a way to be able to have God's presence dwell with them. So think about this. As you're going through the storyline of Scripture, when you get to Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abraham and says, I'm going to make out of you a special nation, a special people. There's going to be many, many descendants after you, and all the world will be blessed because of you. Now remember what you have when you're reading Scripture. You're not just reading all of history from the day number one until uh, shortly after Christ died. You're reading a selective history. God has chosen parts of it, and he's given his theological notes to help us understand what's going on. So as you go through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you're especially getting this focused history on what God's doing with the nation of Israel. Now, there's a whole lot of other people in the world as well. That's why you see them running into conflict with the Philistines and later on the Babylon and uh, these other nations and countries. And God is working out his plans and purposes for them. But in Scripture, we're getting God's plans and purposes specifically in the Old Testament as he works with the nation of Israel. God had told Abraham that his descendants, and eventually when they become the nation of Israel, they were going to be God's special people. They were his chosen people. They were going to be a blessed nation nation and they would be a testimony to the world around them. Why? Was it because the nation of Israel was perfect and holy and awesome? And God said, because you're so good, then I'm going to love you? Well, no. The more you read scripture, you see actually there were some pretty big failures in the life of the Israelites and in the lives of their leaders. David has already made some of them. There's more to make. Why did God choose Israel? It was his grace. It was his sovereign choice. He wanted to bless them and yet that creates attention. How can a righteous and holy God, one who's perfect and without sin and who cannot be in the presence of sin, how can he relate and have fellowship with and dwell with a sinful, unrighteous people? Well, that could only happen if there was some means of covering, some, some means of atonement, some, some way for sin to be dealt with. And God's plan for that was the sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, God's plan for that was the sacrificial system uh, 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 that, that whereby the priests could make sacrifices and blood could atone for the sins of the people. And therefore, God himself, God, the very presence of God, could dwell with the nation of Israel. And that happened through the sacrificial system that was represented in the tabernacle, through the priests, through the holy of holies, through the holy place, through the, the, the altars that, that upon which the, the sacrifices were presented. And then once a year, there were sacrifices that often to be offered regularly and repeatedly, but once a year in the holy of holies, in the most holy place, the high priest could enter and, and blood could be sprinkled on the ark 
It was this wooden box overlaid with gold, pure gold, very valuable. There were two cherubim with outstretched wings seated on the top of the ark. And inside were the, ten, the two tablets of stone of the Ten Commandments. The author of the Hebrews tells us that also Aaron's rod that budded and a gold, um, gold bowl of manna were, were present in the ark as well. This ark sat in there representing the very center of Israel's worship of God. It was God's throne. It was the most concrete, visible symbol of the presence of God with the people. Therefore, it, it, it was God's way of allowing His presence to dwell with his people. And when you go back to the book of Numbers, there were sp very specific rules associated with this ark. It was supposed to be transported in a very specific way. There were rings on the four corners of the ark through which there were uh, wooden poles overlaid with gold and priests had to carry the ark because there were very specific rules. Uh, you could summarize them, two of them at least, by this. Do not touch and do not look. To, to even look at the ark would be to cause death. It had to be overlaid with a piece of cloth when it was being transported. Only the high priest once a year was able to look on it. Certainly could not touch it. If this very much represented the very presence of who God was, well then any human sinful being that hadn't properly atoned for their sin who touched the ark, well this was... A treacherous act. It was a defiling act. And yet, so why did God represent, why did God create these rules, I should say? Think of it this way. These rules are good and they're in line with the character of God. God is not a God who sits up in heaven thinking, boy, what are some cool rules I can come up with to, to, to knock somebody off today? That's, that's not who God is. Because of God's character, He comes up with rules that are in keeping with His character, which are for our good. So God says, do not murder. Why? Because God is the God of life. Not only is he the God of life, but he's the giver of life. And to murder is to put ourselves in the place of God and take an authority that only belongs to him. God says, do not lie. Why? Because God is a God of truth. These rules are in keeping with his character. So when God says, do not look at the ark and do not touch the ark, it's in keeping with his character that the ark represented the very holiness of who God was. No sin could come into contact with the ark. So if that's what the ark was, what is sin? We need to think about sin. Why was the simple act of touching what we would look at and say the simple act of touching, why did it fall under such harsh judgment? What is sin? A man named Wayne Grudem defines sin as this way. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. You see, we like to think of sins as just some really big embarrassing ones that we can check off the list and say, oh, I've, I've, well, thank goodness I've never murdered anyone, or, or I've never done this, or I've never done that. And we, we run down through the list of, and hopefully if we have enough check boxes, enough check marks clear, then maybe we'll get to the end and God will say, good enough. Well, that's, 
not how God is going to judge on the final day. You see, if God is righteous and holy and perfect, then anything that falls short of that moral standard is sin. So think about it. Have you ever had actions that fall short of the character of who God is? Have you ever had thoughts that fall short of the character of who God is? Have you ever had anything in your nature that falls short of the nature of who God is. A man named R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, talked about sin this way. This is a bit of a lengthy quote, but stick with me. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin? What are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. The slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. It is a revolutionary act. A rebellious act in which we are setting ourselves in opposition to the one to whom we owe everything. It is an insult to his holiness. This is what sin is. This is what we do when we lie, when we cheat, when we steal. We are committing cosmic treason against a righteous and a holy God. So when it comes to Uzzah, his specific sin, when he reached out to touch the ark, he was not doing God a favor. And just at that moment when we might think he was, R.C. Sproul again is commenting, what is your reaction when you see Uzzah reach out and touch the ark? Was this an act of holy heroism? No! It was an act of arrogance, a sin of presumption. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. Do you see it? Do you get it? Here's this sinful man, one who has thought evil thoughts, one who has done evil deeds, and before the very symbol which represents the righteous holiness of God, he assumes that God needs his help and he puts his defiled hand on the ark. That's the sin for which Uzzah was judged. This is why God struck him dead. And so, though it sounds harsh to our ears, Uzzah got what Uzzah deserved. For the wages of sin is death. And here you have a, an unholy, defiled man reaching out in a way that he should not have. In a way that God gave very clear instructions that were ignored. So let's think about this for a second for you and I before we continue in the story. You see, as I, we think about this question of are you ready to die, you have to realize that one day you will stand before a righteous and holy God at the end of your life and you will face judgment and you, the only measure that can be taken of your life is such that the measurement will be taken and you will be found to be sinful. One who didn't measure up to God. One who just like Uzzah 
defiled God's standard of righteousness and holiness. You see, you and I, Uzzah reminds ourselves that, that we too have sinned against a righteous and holy God. Over and over, Scripture makes it clear that this can be done in one of two ways, at least one of two ways. One by being very, very bad, and the other by being very good. Both ways will not accomplish the righteousness of God. So here's what I mean by that. Here's some of the sinful ways that you and I are like Uzzah. When we pridefully lift ourselves up, over and against our brothers and sisters, speaking in a way that devalues and tears them down, we are like Uzzah. When our thoughts and actions are filled with and motivated by jealousy, envy, and greed, God will judge us swiftly just as he did by Uzzah. When we turn to illicit pleasures seeking satisfaction outside of God-given boundaries, we're saying, God, my way is better than your way. I don't need to submit to your law. And we are like Uzzah. So how about you? Are you walking in sin against God in ways that you shouldn't? But then also, just not, not only just by ways that are very bad, but also in striving to be good, we can think that somehow maybe our goodness will bring us into the graces of God. Maybe if we go to church enough, maybe if we worship hard enough, maybe if we try to fight against evil in our own lives and in the lives of others, perhaps we will be able to help God. Let me ask you this question. Do you think God needs your help? in making you righteous or in making others righteous? Is God indebted to you and your help? One commentator commenting on this says it this way. He says, we do not take care of God. God takes care of us. Uzzah is the person who, instead of losing himself in the worship of God, has God in a box and officiously assumes responsibility, responsibility for keeping God safe from the mud and dust of the world. Men and women keep showing up in religious precincts who take upon themselves the task of protecting God from the vulgarity of sinners and the ignorance of commoners. Does this describe you at times that you think God needs your help and that somehow your righteousness can be stacked up? And, and yeah, maybe you understand that you need the blood of Christ, but well, maybe you don't need as much as the person next to you because they're a lot worse and you've tried to keep your life better. God does not need our help. We are sinful people and our best actions trying to reach out and do the right thing, God looks at and says, sinful cannot be allowed into my presence. And no matter how good we strive to be, even this, brothers and sisters, as you notice in the passage, even the right intentions, good motives, don't justify an unrighteous action. If you look at verse 5, you'll notice there's this massive worship party going on. The people think they're finally doing the right thing. We're restoring the ark to its central place of worship. And then you're going to see it later as we go into the story. Verse 15 is a very much of a repeat scene. There's a processional of the ark then done the right way and the people are worshiping, celebrating, shouting, and God was only pleased with one of them. Keep in mind that, that even the right intentions don't pacify God against our sin. Well, if that's why sin is such a problem to a righteous and holy God, where is the hope? 
What's the hope for you and I? If we stand before God on Judgment Day and we, we uh, will one day be faced with a judge who's going to look at our lives and by the way, the same God who judged Uzzah in 2 Samuel is the same God that we will face on Judgment Day. There is no difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Why? Because the God of the New Testament is both a God of justice and a God of grace. There are harsh judgments and overwhelming grace and mercy. And the God of the Old Testament is both a God of justice, judgment, and a God of grace. Look at this story that there is grace even here for the Israelites in what happened to Uzzah. Look at the way that God used this. So let's pick up the story in verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. At this point, 30,000 people, massive worship celebration, Uzzah is struck dead, and David is fearful. And he says, um, not sure what happened, got something wrong, plan B. Uh, who am I to take the ark into Jerusalem? Obed-Edom, you take the ark. And he puts it the ark in Obed-Edom's house for three months. Why exactly David was upset, what he was angry at. Some people think that he was angry at God. I'm not sure that's the best explanation, but, but perhaps David was even uh, upset for realizing that he didn't follow God's instructions as he should. Perhaps he was sorrowful for Uzzah and what this meant for his family. But David says, let's go back to the drawing board, and, and the ark is put in Obed-Edom's house. Now something interesting happens for three months. Obed-Edom prospers. Uh, the the presence of the Lord is a good thing, and David sees that, and he realizes, okay, we need to figure out how to do this the right way. And David says, in, uh, uh, excuse me, in 2 Samuel 6, verse 12, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because, the ark of, because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And, and some of the verses that follow can tell you more about the celebration. But do you catch what happens this time? David says, we're going to do this the right way. And, and it says that when those who bore the ark, that word is specific, that now they are carrying the ark. They realize that it should have never been on a cart in the first place. The Philistines had tried that. The cart was their technological invention, and the Israelites thought, sure, what would be, we'll just have the priest drive the cart. Surely God will be okay with that. No, if God gives rules and instructions, we would be wise to follow them. And so David does. And six steps in, there's a sacrifice First Chronicles, remember in, in the way the Old Testament scriptures work, Chronicles is a retelling, it's more of the history of some of the same events that you're getting now in, in, in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. And so Chronicles tells us that then when the ark makes it all the way to Jerusalem, there's a, there's a very big sacrifice. Seven animals are, are sacrificed. And so there's this big celebration where David realizes with solemn 
with the solemnness that this deserves, he's going to do things properly and according to God's explanations. But where was David in all of this? Especially as you see, as it ended so well, the second time that he decides to take the ark up and there was the sacrifices and there was still great rejoicing, there was huge celebration. David it was with all his might celebrating before God. And yet at the beginning, he was distraught. Where is David in this? What are we to make of David's actions? As, as uh, just before Sunday school, I was praying with one of our elders, George Bruin, and he asked me a, a question about the passage that I appreciate because it, it turned my thoughts then to a verse that I want to share with you in the book of First Chronicles. First Chronicles 15. So again, this is a retelling of some of the same events, and David is giving instructions to the priests before they carried the ark. And he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. And verse 13 says, Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Because we did not seek him according to the rule. At some point, David saw his own complicit guilt in the situation. Yeah, yeah the Lord broke out against Uzzah. The Lord punished Uzzah because he was the one who touched the ark. But all of Israel was being judged. Um, Uzzah was the one who made the mistake, but God broke out against Israel because they didn't follow his rules and plans. Someone should have known and followed the Old Testament scriptures, and they didn't. So think about what God was doing through the judgment of Uzzah. David is about the, the most significant kingship in Old Test for Israel's history is, is in its fledgling years, and there are some things that are off track their hearts aren't where they should be. All of them were complicit in the guilt. God would have been justified for not just striking Uzzah, but for striking every single one of the Israelites. Why? Because they had all committed cosmic treason. They had all had unrighteous actions. And yet God in His grace and His mercy and His love says, I love you. You're my people. I want your hearts. And by this act of judgment, David goes back to plan B and for three months he's seeking God and he says, we're going to do this right. And the people then have this wonderful worship celebration as the ark is marched in. Why would God do that? Grace. He loves them. He's not a God who's just waiting to strike every single person dead. He, he's, he's after our hearts. He loves us. He wants people to turn to him in salvation. And so you have the quote again from R.C. Sproul in your bulletin that says this, the issue is not why does God punish sin, but why does he permit the ongoing human rebellion? What prince, what king, what ruler would display so much patience with a continually rebellious populace? When you read the Old Testament, you see a God of patience, a God of grace, a God of second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh chances. You see a God who's after the hearts of his people. 
The question is not why does he judge sin so swiftly, but why is he so gracious? Why did he bring you here today? If you're an unbeliever here in our midst this morning and you haven't yet made a decision to trust in Christ for salvation, why did God bring you here today to hear this story of, yes, God's judgment, but also God's grace, his patience, his love? He's pleading for you this morning. He loves you. He knows that on judgment day you will stand before him as one condemned. And yet he says, I love you and that's why I sent Jesus Christ to this earth. God's son Jesus came to this earth and lived a perfect life. He was fully God and fully man and he still had to die. Not as a covering for his own sins but as a covering for my sins and for your sins. It was the once for all sacrifice. No longer did priests year after year have to offer sacrifices in the holy place and in the tabernacle. Jesus was a once for all sacrifice. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again on what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, that God raised Jesus Christ to new life. And over and over and over, the invitation of the New Testament is turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. So I ask you, are you ready to die? That will only be true if you have turned from your sins and trusted in Christ for salvation. If you've come to that point in your life where you realize there's nothing good in you, you deserve God's judgment, but you realize that Jesus paid for your sins. And scripture says that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In the book of John, John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He's a God of grace. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus Christ and his payment on the cross for your sins? You see, to be prepared to die this morning, you need to know that Jesus is your only hope. It was his work on the cross that pays for your sins. If you're an unbeliever this morning, I invite you to that. Turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. I'll be available after the service down front. Would love to speak with you more about that or even set up a time this week where we or another person from our church could meet with you and be able to share the hope of the gospel in that way. If you're a believer, have you found the abundant life the one that would cause you to worship with all your might before God and his presence? Does being in the presence of God fill you with joy? Do you look at his rules and realize that they are in keeping with the character of God? Therefore, you're good. They're not designed to keep you from joy. They're the pathway to joy. Are you resting in Christ's righteousness or do you think that somehow God needs your help? Because that is a miserable way to live. You won't find joy, the joy-filled life that Jesus intended. Run to him, trust in him. You don't have to be perfect. David wasn't. And yet he worshiped with all his might because he knew who God was and the grace that God provided. Let's pray. Father, I come to you 
We are grateful for your righteousness as God. May we see you as the holy God that you are. May that fact not scare us and keep us from you, but may it fill us with joy because in your holiness you've provided a way of salvation. If there's any here this morning that don't know Christ as Savior, may your spirit work in their hearts that they would see their need of salvation. We ask and pray in Christ's name, amen.